I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Mostly Folk. Today we have visiting with us via telephone Phil Cohn and Patricia Ford, who will be talking about not only their new album, which was recently released, called Threads of Gold, but also about Phil's work and book that was recently published. So lots of things to cover, and let's start it off with a song from the new album, Threads of Gold. Here's Phil Cohen and Patricia Ford with End of the Line. My name's Audie Martello, and welcome to Mostly Folk. Oh. 
with Patricia Ford singing lead vocals. That was End of the Line from their new album, Threads of Gold. Phil Cohen and Patricia Ford. Well, let's talk with Patricia and uh, Phil. I should be transparent here in telling you that somehow we never really got to establish a three-way phone conversation. So Patricia sat by while I spoke with Phil, and Phil sat by while I spoke with Patricia. So I asked Phil to start things off by talking about his background and how he got interested in music. I've played guitar and written songs since I was about 14. I can't really say anything led me to being interested in music. It's like asking what makes a bird interested in flying or a fish interested in swimming. It's just what came naturally to me. Um, and I, I write, I would say first and foremost, I'm a songwriter. I write in a number of different mediums. Um, you know, I've published short stories, fictions, articles for the better part of my life. And um, very recently, I've had a book published by the University of Tennessee Press, The Jackson Project, War in the American Workplace. And where that comes from is that I come from a very rough, blue-collar background in New York City. Um, I didn't have much of a childhood. I left home when I was 16. Um, Really was never 16. I was 18 for three years so I could work and worked a variety of kind of rough and tumble blue-collar jobs so I could make a man's living even though I was still a kid. I was a living manager of a Skid Row hotel. I drove gypsy cabs, which are illegal taxis that work in the neighborhoods of New York that legitimate taxi drivers are afraid to work in. I was one of the few white kids in the city that did that. Um, I drove legitimate taxis for five years um, and then moved down south and one thing led to another. I, for nine years, I was a city bus driver in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And there was a union local there that really didn't do a whole lot to represent folks. And I ended up taking over the local and becoming chief steward and being able to give people some effective representation, which led to my getting a lot of media coverage. And one thing led to another. And I got hired by what at the time was known as the Amalgamated Clothing and Textile Workers Union as a lead organizer in 1988. And I spent 23 years in the field for the union. I guess my soundbite for what I did was I negotiated and enforced collective bargaining agreements. I was the union's troubleshooter. I got sent into the most difficult and dangerous situations. Um, were playing by the rules and going by the book just didn't work. Um, When companies sent in professional union busters, which happens a lot in the South, which is where I'm located now, the union sent in me. And the Jackson Project, War on the American Workplace, is a memoir about one of the most intense and dramatic um, union campaigns I was involved in, It was at a West Tennessee textile mill in 1989, and it's a memoir. Um, You know, first and foremost, it's really about the people, which is what my work with the union was about for me. Um, And I guess we can go into more discussion about the book later. My train ended up on the wrong track. 
Patricia Ford with lead vocals and Phil Collin from their new album, Threads of Gold. That was the title track. Well, in the conversation that I had with Phil and Patricia, as as I said at the beginning, we couldn't connect a three-way conversation. So at this point, Phil turned the phone over to Patricia and we talked a little bit about her. Let's talk about your background, how where you grew up and, and what influenced you musically. And uh, also I see that uh, you are uh, an accomplished artist, illustrator, editor. So uh, let's talk about your background first and, and how you got to this point where you are today. Okay, long story. Um, well, I grew up in a college town. And uh, both my parents were college-educated, so um, I kind of had um, the academic interests in my environment. My mother always encouraged me to do a lot of reading, and she helped me with um, really good English language use and skills and editing, and, and I have to credit her with some of my abilities for editing. 
um, she herself did a lot of that. She was an executive secretary um, at a radio state, radio and TV <clears throat> network station. So um, huh? she kind of passed on what she knew to me, and that was her college training as well. Um, <laughs> and um, so, you know, my both of my parents um, played a lot of music. My but right from the get go, my father had a Heath kit. You know, the old things that you built yourself and. He enjoyed all different kinds of music. I mean, I remember hearing music from the Latin craze of the late 50s and dancing to it in the living room floor, just like kids dance to mm-hmm. pop music on the radio these days, you know. And he, he was just a big, huge music fan of all different kinds of music. And, and my mom and my dad both played music a lot at home hmm. like all the time every weekend and in the evenings and i also had dance lessons so i i got dosed with a lot of music that way and danced to all different sorts um but especially classical so you know by the time i got a little bit older and you know the beatles show up on the scene i'm already singing and you know, I got a lot of practice singing in church. Um, I went to church, and where was it um, that you grew up? Singers get started that way. I I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I'm a, a uh-huh. local girl down there. Although um, the whole family was originally from Ohio, my 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 dad moved down to North Carolina for uh, work. Mm-hmm. When did you start taking an interest in becoming a musician? I was in some theater productions. Um, I was a vocalist, and um, I was a better vocalist than actress, I'd have to say that. But um, I did um, several different um, theater productions that involved music, and a couple of the um, producers and directors of those productions coached uh, uh, the people who were, you know, singing Um, So I developed some abilities there as well as in church and just socially, and I used to sing to myself all the time. I I, I had some training. It was sort of semi-informal. You know, these were professional people that taught me professional skills, but it wasn't like I had lessons that my parents paid for. It just came along Mm -hmm. with my activities. Die! 
From the guiding star of a post that's lost That leads you in the night I followed my dreams down a dead end road Where the rainbow ends But there isn't no gold I squandered my money Abandoned my friends Chasing Tell me about the nickname T-Bird. How did you get that? Well, that is a period of time when I kind of vagabonded and traveled around for about four years. Um, I, I like the word vagabonding. Um, you know, it's mm-hmm. I spent a couple of years doing that uh, in the States and then a couple of years' worth of time over in Europe um, um, in the early 90s. Um, it was uh, 90, 89 to 92, basically, was my period of time when I was traveling. And my companion and I were at a nice place in Florida, some really wonderful people that invited us to <clears throat> stay with them over the weekend. and. We slept uh, those nights in a gypsy wagon that they had out on their land, and there was a beautiful sticker in the window the first morning, and he looked at it, and he said, Rainbow Thunderbird, that's that's who you are. <laughs> and so I, I kind of got my spirit name that way, and um, um, my last name kind of fit with it because it's Ford, and, you know, the <laughs> company made Thunderbird, so I said, well, it's well enough, and I had been <laughs> called some other uncomplimentary car names, and I said, well, That's I'm going to take this one, so I don't get called a Model T <laughs> anymore. Um, but that's how I got my name. Um, uh-huh. And cool. I guess my professional activity really kind of started on the street, if you can um, count getting paid tips <laughs> and some people mm-hmm. throwing coins into the guitar case. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of yeah. how I got going, but I, I have to say I cut my chops there because it was a lot of practice. We probably paid music somewhere between six to eight hours a day. Wow, lots of wow. lots of singing. And as far as meeting Phil, um, how did how how does that go? We met uh, through uh, we met at a social function that a mm-hmm. mutual friend had invited both of us to, just social circles. And, uh-huh. But, um, you know, Phil, I, Phil did I, tell I me, but... Uh, right away. Musically, musically, where did, where did that fit into your meeting? Well, I guess our social circles were just a lot of people that um, music was just simply part of their life, and um, mm-hmm. I really didn't know 
uh, that Phil was himself a musician till we started spending some time together, and um, uh-huh. he found out that I had been traveling as a singer for four years, and and just kind of sweetly asked, "Would you be interested in just hanging out and singing with me a little bit?" And I said, uh-huh. "Sure, why not?" <laughs> now, I notice on on the album credits that. Uh, you play some percussion things. I do. Uh, do you play any other instrument? Just my vocal cords. Aside um, from I, your vocal cords. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I have some flute-like instruments too, but I can't say that I, I do more than play with them or play around with them. Really? Um, it, that's just, you know, for personal um, enjoyment. Um, the, the 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 percussion's really the only um, area of instruments that I perform with. And your work as an illustrator, uh, tell me about that. I have a college degree in um, design, although uh, it doesn't mean quite the same thing now that it did when I graduated in 1972. Um, I went to East Carolina University, which is still a very good art school in the South. And um, I just started freelancing as soon as I got out of school. Um, And eventually I had, you know, several different kinds of jobs. And um, ultimately I wound up um, doing things in the printing profession because it's pretty much where graphic arts take somebody you know it's almost always for something that's going to be printed um so um i i worked in the publishing field and i did all kinds of different things brochures flyers books and um so on and i just by association with the other skills in publishing i acquired um my experience with editing so you yeah, edited I, the book yes, it is. that Phil wrote, mm-hmm. and the name of the book is? The Jackson Project, War in the American Workplace. Okay, so I guess this would be a good time to switch back to Phil and yeah. have him talk a little bit about that. But first, here's a song from the album called The Guitar Player. He was broke, but with time on his side He had an old guitar and the courage to try When life knocked him down, he would always arise With a curse on his lips Stars in his eyes With a curse on his lips Stars in his eyes But now his back's to the wall He's got no place to fall Hope is a memory He barely recalls He's got no Leaving only the wisdom of hard lessons learned 
It's been twenty long years since his daughter arrived. She can tell all her friends about the life he survived. See, that's my dad sitting over there with the worn leather jacket. the Jackson Project and how you how you began to write this. Tell me tell me the story. Okay, as as I mentioned, I was the union's troubleshooter, and there was a union local in Jackson, Tennessee, which is in the western part of the state. Um, very interestingly, um, that part of Tennessee was kind of made famous in the movie Walk and Tall. I don't mean the new piece of garbage with the rock in it, but the old classic Walk and Tall that was made in the 1970s about um, a very corrupt 
and dangerous part of Tennessee. And that's where this factory was located. And in fact, scenes from the movie were actually shot in Jackson. And it's a very anti-union company, um, which is not uncommon in the textile industry, which is one of the most anti-union industries in the United States, in the process of getting taken over by an even more anti-union company. And the union local itself was in a state of disarray and chaos. And I was sent in as an operative to shift the balance of power, um, identify real leadership within the union local and train and develop them and help put them in the forefront and um, just change the situation and shift the dynamics. And, you know, essentially my instructions from the union were, by any means necessary, no questions asked, get it done. And so that's what I went to Jackson to do. And I don't really want to give away the plot of the book, because in many ways this is an action thriller. There's a lot mm -hmm. of mystery and intrigue in it. Um, mm -hmm. But I'll say that the, you know, the style of the book reads like a novel, except that happens to be true. And, I mean, down to mm -hmm. the last detail, it's well documented. But it is not some political manifesto about, you know, the righteous cause of the labor movement, because, frankly... I hate political manifestos, and I wouldn't subject my readers to that. Um, mm -hmm. this, is, this isn't a book about ideology. It's a book about real life. So the book is really a drama about real people and their lives as they unfold within a labor dispute. Uh, but at the same, in the same token, um, somebody who reads this book will come away understanding more about unions and how they operate and how they affect people's lives and the tactics they've used than they've probably um, learned in their whole life put together beforehand. Mm. This is a genuine insider's story. You know, mm. the majority it sounds of fascinating. Books, I'm sorry? I say it sounds fascinating. Yeah, thank you. Um, the majority of books about unions, ironically, are written by intellectuals, you know, by college professors, by journalists, by people standing on the outside looking in. This is one of the very, very few books about unions written by an organizer that actually lived the fight. And the irony of that is that unions are a rough-and-tumble, blue-collar world, and yet almost everything that's been written about unions has been written by intellectuals who've never spent five minutes within the world in which unions unfold and frankly wouldn't last five minutes if they tried. So mm -hmm. this is the real story. This is the real deal. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that happened in Jackson were, even by my standards and you know, my frame of reference, were so extreme and affected me so deeply that this particular campaign, of the countless campaigns I directed during my career, really stayed with me. I mean, ever since I left Jackson, I always knew I was going to write a book about this. And I really thought I would do it much sooner than I did. But the thing is, it's really impossible to do this kind of work and write about it at the same time. 
I mean, you sort of can't be off fighting one war and at the same time sit down at night and write about a different war. Yeah. There just isn't space within one's life to do that. We are the children of the angel of freedom. We are the soldiers of the good fight. In unions across this land that we live in, we are the workers joined by Unite. We make the products that America runs on, the yarn and the cloth and the clothes that you wear. For so many years we were taken for granted, Till we stood together to get our fair share We are the children of the angel of freedom We are the soldiers of the good fight In unions across this land that we live in We are the workers joined by Unite You know that our struggle, it never comes easy You never guess all the scars that we bear We live in a land where the law stacked against us But the law ain't as strong as our faith and our prayers We are the children of the angel of freedom we are the soldiers of the good fight In unions across this land that we live in We are the workers joined by Unite I remember the days when we started our union Our power was hope and their weapons despair they did all they could to hurt and divide us All we wanted was justice and a wage that was fair We are the children of the angel of freedom We are the soldiers of the good fight In unions across this land that we live in We are the workers joined by Unite We stood at the gate when the rain was a-freezing We were lied to and fired, sometimes we were scared But we never backed down, we just kept a-coming And our contract bears witness to all that we dared We are the children of the angel of freedom we are the soldiers of the good fight In unions across this land that we live in We are the workers joined by Unite We are the children of the angel of freedom We are the soldiers of the good fight In unions across this land that we live in we are the workers joined by Unite. And so I carried this book around inside of me. 
like the way a pregnant whale carries its calf across the oceans of the world for years and years until it's time to give birth. And one of the reasons I retired and took an early retirement in 2011 was so I could finally sit down and write. So this was something I had within me to do and knew I was going to do for over 20 years. And after I'd been retired for a year, in kind of the early summer of 2012, I finally sat down and started to write it. Though I'll preface that by saying beforehand for several months, um, I've saved every scrap of paper um, associated with my union career. Um, every document, every activity log, etc. because I always knew one day I was going to write about it. And so I had to spend several months going through boxes and boxes of documents in my garage to like just pull out the thousands of pieces of paper associated with the Jackson campaign and then put them in chronological order, sometimes scraping the mouse droppings off the documents that had been in the bottom of a box for 20-something years. Sure. But once I had all that in order, I was in a position to reconstruct the campaign and, you know, look at things. You know, look at correspondence, look at grievance forms, look at notes that would jog my memory and bring me back there. And during the time I was writing the book, I really shut myself up in a room for a year and a half, and that was my life. And I lived with one foot in the present and hmm. one foot in 1989 back in Jackson. I was there again, reliving every second of it as I wrote the book. Right. Now, I guess this would be a great time to ask you if pe people want to get this book, where would they, uh, what's the best way to pick it up? Okay, the, um, the Jackson Project is available wherever books are sold in the United okay. States and around the world. Um, the best prices are at Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. Um, okay. But if people prefer the independent bookstores, they've all got it. And since I know you have an overseas audience, um, it's mm -hmm. available at numerous bookstores in Europe, um, right. especially in England um, and in Germany. But okay. there are bookstores in all of the European company, all the European countries that have it available. All of the Amazons have it. Every Amazon in the world, all the Amazons in Europe, Amazon France, Amazon England. Amazon Germany, etc., Amazon Australia, they've all got it available. Um, a lot of bookstores in Australia have it. Huh? Uh, but if, yeah. if you simply, if, if people, especially overseas, if they Google the name of the book, The Jackson Project, War on the American Workplace, um, they will see a, they'll see a long list of retailers carrying the books. That will include those in their own country. The organizing trail is a hard life, my friend You stand at the gate in the rain and the wind And the scabs walk by and they threaten your life From the first of the morning to late in the night from the first of the morning till late in the night 
I've been many hard miles, but one thing I know This town's with a union where there was none before This town's with a union where there was none before You knock on the door of the folks where they live To see if support for the union they'll give And you're so far from home and you're too tired to stand Yet you walk that line with the sign in your hand Yet you walk that line with the sign in your hand I've been many hard miles but one thing is clear There's folks standing tall who once lived in fear There's folks standing tall who once lived in fear There's many a fool on the company's side And many good men who just works the line And many good people get brought to their knees And many a promise gets lost in the breeze And many a promise gets lost in the breeze I've been many hard miles, but one thing I'll swear The union is a light in the face of despair The union is a light in the face of despair Oh, the union is a light in the face of despair. And how about your website? Do you have a formal website that people can take a look at both the music and the and the book? Actually, yes, we do. We have a very elaborate website that's been evolving since 1997. It's called Hard Miles Music. That's the name of our record label. And the record on the website is simply hardmilesmusic.com. And all our albums are there. There's um, a page about the book that includes a two-chapter preview and links where to buy it. Um, also, you know, um, T-Bird was mentioning to you about her training as an artist. She did a lot of absolutely wonderful political cartoons for my various union campaigns that appeared on leaflets and in newsletters. And we have a whole gallery of her union cartoons on the website. Rest is something I forget what it feels like. But working for the rent with a child all alone The days slip through my fingers 
The nights seem to never end I look in the mirror at eyes growing old And my heart is aching For something just out of reach My soul is screaming like a siren in the night Working so hard not to just quit believing Working so hard just to guard my frail It's ringing, the little one is crying Two bodies to dress and we're on our way And all tugs at your soul in the place where you're lonely And leaves you so empty by the end of the day My heart is aching for something just out of reach. My soul is screaming like a siren in the night. Working so hard not to just quit believing. Working so hard just to guard my frail love. Inside me, a baby is crying In the next room, a child is at play I look into a face, so trusting and loving Look into my heart and find nothing to say heart is aching for something just out of reach. My soul is screaming like a siren in the night. Working so hard not to just quit believing. Working so hard just to guard my frail life. Reverse poetry, um, links to magazine articles. Um, I'm also a wildlife photographer. Yeah, so I was going to ask you about that. Um, 
uh, talk about that. A lot of my subjects are reptiles and amphibians. Do some mammals. Um, all my life, nothing has comforted me more or nurtured me more than the natural world. Yeah. And, you know, especially, and that's one of the reasons, you know, growing up in like everything that gives New York City a bad name, being a real kid from the streets of New York, that set me off traveling at a very young age. So I was always seeking places that were beautiful. I mean, I, starting really in my teens, um, I hitchhiked tens of thousands of miles all over the United States and eventually traveled all over Europe and Asia. You know, back then, without really a whole lot of money, kind of traveling 10th class. And more than anything, I was just seeking to go places that were beautiful, where the nature was different than what I'd experienced before. And eventually in 2005, um, we bought some property out in a very remote part of North Carolina. Um, you know, close enough that I was an hour away from a lot of my assignments with the union, but not surrounded by anything in close proximity. And we have five and a half acres out there in a very underpopulated part of the state where there's a lot of wildlife. And, you know, the focus of my wildlife photography is different from a lot of other wildlife photographers. I'm not a naturalist. I'm not a scientist. I could really care less about, you know, documenting behavior of this species versus that species. Once I believe, I'm aware of something that everybody was aware of in tribal cultures. You know, in the Native American cultures, in the cult, in the Celtic tribes of Europe, you know, in African tribes that have been forgotten by our, you know, more modern industrialized world. And that is that there is a spirit, there's a soul, there's a being, there's an awareness inside mm -hmm. of every li living creature. I mean, the notion that the soul was something limited to humans is a vanity of organized religion and a way to control people and a way to make it seem acceptable to think that other forms of life don't have rights. Yeah. So what I'm doing in my, my photography is up close and personal. I'm looking to capture the being within inside of every creature. Um, mm -hmm. Almost all of my subjects I'm making eye contact with. I am very, very close to them. I form relationships in the wild with creatures that a naturalist would say are absolutely impossible. But I've done it and I've documented it in my pictures. Um, but I get very close well, I'm, to I'm, I'm looking okay. at your photos right now, yeah. and they're gorgeous. And I, I certainly urge people to visit Phil's website and there is a link there to view the photography and they're great photos. Every evening the sun goes down and the stars and the moon love to dance around in the sky in the sky the evening winds they blow so cold beneath the covers I love to hold you close to my soul 
So shut your eyes and drift away All of the things we did yesterday Are a dream Are a dream Flying high on a silver string The soul is free to dance and swing with the stars And the moon Dancing free with the stars and moon The angels sing a magic tune just for you Just for you Running through the clouds You wonder if they Would allow you to ride To ride But every morning The sun breaks through You open your eyes And forget that you can fly Khan has written the foreword to your yeah. book, and uh, yet at the same time, your songs are really aren't uh, labor infused. Is, is, is you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, look, absolutely. Um, I'll tell you why. Okay. I live in a much bigger world than unions. When I'm in the field. I am there 150%. I am passionately loyal to the union and its members. Okay? I have risked my life. I have risked my freedom. I have risked my very job itself in the service of the union's members. So I've got nothing to prove in terms of, you know, how much the extent of my involvement with the labor movement, because I haven't talked that I've lived it. But Good you know, my interests and my passions extend way beyond the labor movement. And part of the reason I've been able to make a unique contribution to the union is because I've been able to take the full substance, the full you know, breath of what I am and bring it to bear at a given time and place when I'm in the field. I'm able to take my humanity and bring it to bear in a union local. 
and workers sense that, and they respond to that. You know, for yeah. me, the union was never about, you know, first and foremost, about politics or about ideology. It was about the people. That's because I am working people. I do know what it's like to work for next to nothing and be treated like garbage. I fought my way out of that. And I realized somewhere along the line that I had the ability to awaken that in other people. And so, you know, the book is kind of reflects what my relationship with my work with the union was about, which is it's about the people. The union's a vehicle. It's not an end in and of itself. And so what I write about is life and people, not simply repeating the same message over and over again about the union. Makes a lot of sense. You know, I mean, the truth is most songs, kind of like what I said about books about unions, most songs about unions, are written by college-educated liberals who never spent one damn day in a blue-collar environment themselves. And they're union supporters and the union romanticizers, but they never lived it. And frankly, when I hear songs like that, I mean, part of the expression it makes me, makes me feel like I want to punch the lights out of the person who wrote it. Because <laughs> they're romanticizing something they never lived, and I've been there. Even even the more famous or popular union songs from Seeger and Guthrie and and those kind of people. And no, Guthrie, he, Woody Guthrie is different. I love Woody Guthrie. He's written some okay. great songs because he lived it. I mean, not that he, I don't think he was ever really a member of a union local, but he comes from a rough and tumble, down and out background. Hmm. You know, he... He rode freight trains around the country. He lived it. He's writing from his own experience. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about more some of the contemporary stuff I've been exposed okay. to. I love Israel, but it's not where we live. There's been too much damage for us to I must save my own heart While the angels cry
all the bullets he needs On the mornings he's home He sits alone in his room Stares out his window And imagines his doom I thought to plant flowers If they'd comfort him some But who knows when the moment He'd see them would come Who knows when the moment He'd see them would come I pray for his safety As he's loading his gun And think of him always When he's out on the run And wonder myself Why it's such a big fight Protecting our people and all of their rights Protecting our people and all of their rights And the gift of his music he's tried so to share Is bestowed on a world that can't seem to care Oh, I see well enough how it makes his soul bleed Still they're happy to pay for all the bullets he needs Happy to pay for all the bullets he needs He says I'm the singer that he's heard in his dreams to express all those feelings But he asks what it means If nobody listens Should he give up all hope And I'm right down there with him At the end of his rope Right down there with him At the end of his rope I know He's feeling and it brings us both tears But if he does what they want I'm alone with my fears I tell him there's no good enough reason why I can see his soul starving But I won't watch it die See his soul starving But I won't watch it die So another day dawns with another farewell As he rides off to war with his demons from hell And I ask all the world, are there any who'll take All the roses that spring up and bloom in his wake Roses that spring up and bloom in his wake Roses that spring up and bloom in his way. On this new album, you have a song called Trouble on My Mind. Yeah. Uh, is there any story behind that? 
that yeah, absolutely. I actually wrote that song when I was 19 years old, and I was in my phase when, you know, I spent half my time kind of working jobs in New York to put some money in my pocket, then I'd go off hitchhiking around the country. And I was about to go off hitchhiking and having some more adventures. And I sat down one day on the spot and wrote that song. And um, T-Bird and I had been performing that song for decades, but we finally got around to recording it on this new album. And it's the one song on this new album that I sing the lead and T-Bird sings the harmonies. I took my toothbrush, took my pen I'm on the road again I'm on the highway There's a woman waiting at the end of the road Not exactly the woman I wanted to hold anyway It's more than some folks got been on the road before, be on it again, it's probably Where my life's gonna end At least I'm living And when I get back, I'm gonna settle down It's what I said last time round Jordan know me by now And honey, can't you tell when I've got trouble on my mind Honey, can't you tell when I got trouble on my mind in out of trouble, in out of trouble all the time. But now the police, they try to put me in jail, but my crazy schemes never fail. Only my dreams do, and I'm kept busy most ever and off of the big things. I'm still wondering why that isn't Honey, can't you tell when I got trouble on my mind? Honey, can't you tell when I got trouble on my mind? In out of trouble, in out of trouble all the time Been on the road before, be on it again, that's problem Where my life's gonna end I'm living And when I get back I'm gonna settle down It's what I said Last time round Jordan know me by now Honey, can't you tell When I get the trouble on my mind Honey, can't you tell When I get the trouble on my mind In out of trouble In out of trouble background in 
in uh, the labor movement and uh, what went on there. Uh, so I'm I'm wondering how you feel about the recent election here in the United States and why working people voted for Donald Trump. Okay, well, first, in terms of the implications, the Trump administration has the potential of being the absolute worst thing for the labor movement and working people in general that has happened in this country for decades. Um, his agenda certainly speaks to that. But on the other hand, the good news, if you will, is that presidents get elected by running off at the mouth about supposed plans and intentions to appeal to what they consider their voter base and then really end up being very ineffective about actually implementing it. I mean, for example, you know, when Obama came into office, he was going to implement all these incredible you know, reforms that would make things better for unions and working people, and not one of them came to pass. So hopefully Trump and his administration will be as ineffective in acting to the detriment of the labor movement as Barack Obama was in acting um, to the betterment of the labor movement. But that remains to be seen. You know, it's really ironic that, you know, I mean, Trump is just the poster child for corporate America. And so how could so many blue-collar people, some of them union members, be duped into voting for him? And the thing is that, you know, every despot, you know, every politician with a fascist mentality has an expertise and a cunning for knowing how to push people's hot buttons, for mm -hmm. appealing to their emotions to the extent that they override the person's common sense. And mm -hmm. Trump did an extremely effective job of doing that to America's working people, certainly not all of them but some of them. And, you know, one of the real ironies of um, the Trump election is that Bill Clinton nearly got himself impeached because so many people became incensed about, you know, his personal life, an act of oral sex in his personal life. In fact, George Bush won and Al Gore lost, that tiny margin that made the difference. You know, Florida aside, all pivots around an act of oral sex. I mean, it's, it's absolutely almost mind-boggling that the entire fate of not just the United States, but the planet pivoted on one act of oral sex. Yet on the other hand, who get, who's elected president now but someone who made his fortune, at least in part, in the casino industry? And, you know, so what is that, you know, casinos are, you know, hotbeds for not just gambling, but for alcohol and for drugs and for prostitution. And I'm not suggesting that Trump was actively involved in all of that, but certainly he made his fortune in the arena that encompasses mm -hmm. that. So essentially Americans elected a vice lord as president <laughs> of the United States, Mm -hmm. After repudi repudiating someone who was actually a halfway decent president and probably the best president for working people that we've had in decades yeah. um, because of something he did in his own personal life that didn't affect anybody else.
<laughs> I, I, would, Artie, I would say that the, um, the cumulative emotional age of America is about 13 years old. I mean, people really don't know what they want. They're reactionary. They flip-flop from one thing to another. I mean, if you just look at the presidential elections, you know, during, you know, the last several decades, you know, you go from Clinton, who at least all things being relative, you know, was a progressive liberal, Mm -hmm. to George Bush. (laughs) And then they elect the first black president in the history of the United States and someone who at least came in with a reformist agenda. Wasn't anywhere as effective a reformer as a Teddy Roosevelt, but someone who came in with a reformist agenda. And right on the heels of that, they elect the most fascist president perhaps the United States has ever had. Mm-hmm. And what's, what's interesting also is that all, of the, all elections in this country are decided by a really slim margin of a couple of percent. Right. And most union elections are decided either for or against having a union with the same kind of slim margin of a couple of percent. And, you know, what that says to me is that, you know, you've got about maybe 47% of the people in this country at least making some effort to have an open mind and adopt progressive values and humanitarian values. And another about 47% of the country that are like dyed-in-the-wool conservatives that are about turning back the clock and caring more about guns and abortion than what happens to people in their community. And it's like maybe 4 to 6% in the middle that decide every election. In fact, it's swayed one way or the other and decide every election from presidential elections to union elections. With every election, I mean, the reason we have these, like, incredible um, dynamic swings between the right and the left is people are never satisfied in this country. People are always looking for change. Mm -hmm. And no matter who they elect, the change they're looking for isn't delivered upon. So they look for change in the opposite direction. And what that really says is that there is something fundamentally broken and dysfunctional about this society. Mm-hmm. And frankly, no president is going to be able to change that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the cure has to happen on a much, much deeper level yeah. than who gets elected to the White House. Yeah, you're right. Set free, but which chose to remain. 
And I know that love lasts forever In a world where all things must change To the tune of a dance never ending We let go as the shapes rearrange Again, I want to thank Phil Cohen and Patricia Ford for joining me today and for sharing not only their music but information about the unions, Phil's book, The Jackson Project, Patricia's artwork, and so many other things. And uh, don't forget that the website for Patricia and Phil is hardmilesmusic.com and you'll get lots of information there. Also, if you want a complete playlist of this program, I know I did not identify all of the songs I played, but you'll find them all at mostlyfolk.org. Just go there and check on episode information for whichever episode this one turns out to be. I'm not sure yet. Well, this is Audie Martello, and I want to thank you all for listening wherever you are. Uh, in the United Kingdom, in Canada, in Germany, in all parts of the world. And I certainly appreciate you tuning in, and I certainly do hope that you'll join me 
for the next episode of Mostly Folk. <laughs>